welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. How are you doing? You good? If you are here for the very first time this morning, you're so welcome, so glad you're here. Let's put our hands together for those that are here for the very first time. One more time. I know Cass has done it, but I love meeting new people. What can I say? And I really trust that you will hang around after the service and get to meet you in the welcome lounge. That would be great. For those of you who are here for the first time, what you won't be aware of is that we're in the middle of a series, but that's fine. Um, You are welcome and you'll soon pick up where we're at because of the way we've structured this series. We are doing a series on the book of Acts that we've entitled Rebels, Riots and Revolutionaries. And we're up to part 11. Can you believe it? 11. And as I've been saying every week, that this series is not an exegesis, line upon line Bible study. Okay, This is an overview of the book of Acts. Okay, And the purpose of this study is to motivate us and to inspire and activate the church. Hence why we've got our volunteers night coming up. But also to give us a love and appreciation about the word of God. And we've just really appreciated the... um, Incredible feedback that we've had from this series so far and the love that people are having for the word. So we appreciate that. Thank you. Having said all that, I want to start by saying the title of today's message is The Power of Partnership. The Power of Partnership. And we're going to be looking at Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts chapters 13 and 14. This journey that Paul took started in about 46 AD. And it ended in about 49 AD and took some two to three years to accomplish. And some uh, 1,400 miles were covered during that time. And his trip involved six cities. If we have the map up here, you'll see that he started in Antioch in Syria. That's where Paul was based. That's where his local church was. And they went through to uh, Paphos and uh, Perga. And then they went to another place called Antioch in Pisidia. And that's like having a Newcastle in Australia and a Newcastle in England. Okay, So same name, different place. Then Iconium, then Lystra, then Derb. And then they went back through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And they went all the way back and returned back home to Antioch, which was his Base church, as I've already mentioned, okay. And uh, it's interesting as you look at that, because of all these cities, um, it's interesting to note that Paul went to cities. I think when we talk about the preaching of the gospel in biblical terms, we tend to think of you know people going to rural towns and country towns, possibly because that's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. But surprisingly, the book of Acts is almost entirely urban. You know why? Because that's where the people are. That's why they went there. PJ Smythe, who leads a church in Johannesburg, said this, urbanisation is trending. In 1800, 3% of the world's population lived in cities. In 2006, it was 50%. And by 2030, 60% will be living in cities. And that's why he is targeting cities. God has placed us in a city called Adelaide. Who loves Adelaide? I love the fact that there's over a million people here and we have an opportunity to reach people. We've been put here on mission. We've been put here on purpose, for a purpose, with a purpose, and we want to make it count. And that's to reach people. Up until this time, the church had its focus in Jerusalem and the main character of the book of Acts was Peter. 
Um, now we're going to see a shift. From Acts 13 onwards, the main base that the uh, church is referred to and from is from Antioch. And Paul takes precedent over Peter in the book of Acts. Main reason was because Luke was with Paul, and so he was the one doing the writing, and so he wrote more about uh, Paul's life than Peter's life. Okay, it doesn't mean Peter fell off the face of the earth, it doesn't mean Peter backslid, it doesn't mean the church of Jerusalem ceased to exist. It's just that the man with the camera went with Paul. Got it? All right. Easy. So, having said all that, are you with me? You got it? Excellent. So, we're going to start with Acts chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. It says, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And they're listed there by name. Um, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Saul and Paul is the same person. In Acts 13, Saul has a name change to Paul. Okay, So Saul is Paul and Paul is Saul. Got it? Good. Set aside Barnabas and Saul slash Paul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. There's many things that we can draw from Scripture. And uh, I've packaged all of this today under the banner of the power of partnership. And I want to highlight three things that we see from Paul's life about him and the value he placed on partnering. Firstly, we see that Paul was in partnership with the local church. And it's good that we know that. He was in partnership with the local church. In the very first verse, it says, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets. There were, and it mentions those that were there. In other words, these men were connected to a local church. They saw the value in belonging to a church. They weren't superstars that just did as they pleased. They were attached and plugged in and connected to the local church. Every born again believer should be connected to the body, a local church. We see These guys were connected to the local church. It says, while they were worshipping and fasting. I love that. While they were worshipping and fasting. In other words, as they were applying their daily disciplines, as they were doing what they did every day, as they did what they were doing just because it was the right thing to do, as they did what they were doing because they had a relationship with God, in other words, they were seeking God's face, not his hand. They were just, just doing what came naturally for the born-again Christian. It says God spoke to them. In other words, they weren't seeking God's will necessarily. They were just seeking God. How much of our prayer is dedicated just to seeking God? Or how much of it has an agenda? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do the other? What's God's will for my life? If you want to know God's will for your life, the unknown will for your life, then you've got to be obedient to the known will. There's many things in the word of God that we know we ought to do. And let's start with doing what we know we ought to do. These guys were praying and fasting because they knew that's what they had to do. And out of doing what they knew to do, God came with the specifics. Does that make sense? And so if you want to know the unknown will of God for your life, if you want to know the specific call of God for your life, if you want to know the the specifics pertaining to your future, then it all starts with just doing what you know. People often say to me, when did you know you were called to plant a church? Basically, having prayed for two years, Just getting together with Pete, we started praying. We never sought God's will or direction so much as we just sought God. 
And after doing that for two years, the pastor of the local church that we were a part of had a meeting with me and said, how about you start your own church? And that's when I knew we were called to plant a church. The specifics came out of just doing that which we knew to do. And I believe this is where so many people go wrong because they turn their prayer meetings into witch hunts, looking for the things that, you know what, will come naturally. Does that make sense? And so here they were, they were just fasting and they were praying. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test. Then, then, then and only then, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is for your life, his good, perfect and pleasing will. When? When you just have your mind transformed with doing what you know you ought to do. And as they were doing that, Paul gets this apostolic call. The word of God comes and says, set apart for me these two guys, Barnabas and Paul. So here they were, connected to a local church. They were doing the daily disciplines of fasting and worshipping and praying. The other thing that stands out about this connection with the local church is that it was a God idea for them to go, not just a good idea. The church is full of good ideas. Christians have lots of good ideas. But a good idea does not necessarily mean it's a God idea. There's a difference between a good idea and a God idea. A God, here, here, I'm going to let you know a little secret. A God idea is what God's in. And a good idea doesn't necessarily mean that God is in it. It might just be a good idea. And these guys were not going to go out just on a good idea. They had the endorsement of the Holy Spirit. And that came through more prayer and more fasting. And the other thing that stands out to me is this, that Paul was sent, not went. You've got to catch this. So they had the endorsement of the Holy Spirit on what they were doing, but they also had the endorsement of the local church. In other words, as this word came in a prayer meeting, that Paul and Barnabas should be set apart to go outside of the local church. There was like a, a resonating within the heart of the other leaders that this was like a good idea and it was a God idea. So it had the seemed right to God and it seemed right to the leaders moment. You might have an idea, you might have something that seems right to you. you, you may have that, but God's told me. But you know what, if God has genuinely told you, and God's called you and placed you in a local church, there should be something that resonates with leadership in the local church if God has his blessing upon it. And so these guys had the blessing of God, they had the blessing of the leaders, and then and only then did they go. So firstly, Paul had partnership with the local church. Secondly, Paul was in partnership with other people. Talking about the power of partnership this morning. In other words, he didn't go alone. Once he did the endorsement of God, once he had the endorsement of the leaders, it says in verse 2, set apart Barnabas and, everyone say and, and Saul. In verse 3, they sent them off. In verse 4, the two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, when they arrived, it also goes on to say that there was John Mark who was also there as their helper. In verse 6, they travelled throughout the whole island. In verse 7, they sent for Barnabas and Saul. All throughout the Bible, we see God 
putting people with people to get a job done. Right from the very beginning of time, it was Adam and Eve. While Adam was alone, God said it's not good. Then he brings another person, a helper alongside him. It was Adam and Eve. It was Moses and Aaron. It was Joshua and Caleb. It was Peter and Andrew. It was James and John. It was Batman and Robin. Or did I just add one? In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Two are better than one. Why, I hear you ask? Well, it tells us, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The Bible is telling us that two are better than one because there's protection. It's great to someone who's got your back. Thank God from the beginning of this church, I've had people like my brother Pete in my life protecting. He's, he's, he's got my back. There's protection. There's help. The different skills that you get from different people brings greater help. There's also the encouragement that comes. The Bible says even youths grow weary. All of us get tired. Even young people with all their energy get tired. That's what the Bible says. So we all get tired. We all get weary. We all get battle scarred and and, and battle weary. And it's great to have someone to stand alongside and say, come on, you can do it. Do you know, next month marks 20 years that Peter and I first got together to start praying together. Back in July of 1992, on a cold Friday morning, Pete and I started praying together from 5.30 to 6.30. We did it every morning. No one told us to. It wasn't a a church program or an event. It's just something God was speaking to me about, God was speaking to Pete about, and we started praying together. And we made this audacious commitment to do it every morning. But I want to be honest with you, there was many mornings I didn't feel like praying. And there was only one reason I got out of bed, because I knew there there was a guy who'd be out of bed raring to pray. And so that motivated me, that encouraged me to get out of bed. If it was just left to me, I'm telling you, I would have slept through my alarm. But I'd get up and I'd run around Pete's place and I'd say, oh, mate, I'm so glad you were waiting for me this morning. Because if you weren't here, I was not getting up this morning. He said, that's funny because the only reason I got up because I knew you were going to come around. <laughs> and then we had this dilemma. We can either go back to bed or we're up now. We might as well pray. And so we prayed. How could we pray every morning? And that's not, a, that's not an exaggeration. We prayed every morning from 5.30 to 6.30. It's what we did. How do you do that? Well, encouragement. We encouraged one another. I want to encourage you to have people in your life. Your and determines your end. It was Tony and Peter. Peter and Tony. The reason we've been going as long as we have is because there's been people in our world and it's been the right people. Your and in your life will determine your end. If there's no and, you'll have no end. And if you have the wrong and, you'll have the wrong end. You show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me who you're hanging around with and we'll work out where you're going to end up in life. You've got to hang around the right people in order to get the right results that you want. Peter was in partnership with the local church. Oh, sorry, Paul was in partnership with the local church. Oh, excuse me, church. But he was also in partnership with the right people 
in his life. And thirdly, Paul was in partnership with other local churches. See, Paul had a lot of love for people, which was a reflection of the love that he had for God. And that love went beyond his own little world. You've got to catch this. Yes, he loved his friends. Yes, he loved his family. Yes, he loved the local church that he was a part of. But he had a missional mandate that he felt obligated to fulfill. And he didn't allow the closeness of his family, the closeness of his friends, the exciting things that were happening on the local front to rob him of the bigger picture. In other words, he didn't allow himself to become so parochial that he missed out what God was asking of him at this time. We don't have the right to sit back and say to hell with the world. Now, as a local church, we may not be able to reach the whole world, but there's a bigger world that we can reach than we're presently reaching. And we have to understand that. As a church, we have an apostolic missional mandate to go beyond these four walls, to go beyond the community God has placed us. Our vision and our mandate includes our community, but it goes beyond that. And Paul understood that. He had this incredible desire to preach the gospel and to plant New Testament churches. In other words, he never had this desire just to have an evangelistic crusade, get people saved, and then just leave them there. There's been too many crusades where people respond at a moment in an altar call, and then they don't get plugged into a local church. Paul went to uh, unreached people groups. He had events, he had moments, and many converts would come from those moments. And instead of just leaving them and getting on with the next place, local churches were established, of which he pioneered, planted, and partnered with into the future. Is this making sense? And so he saw many converts, He saw signs and wonders and miracles and he placed them into a community of believers called the local church. In other words, Paul was more than an evangelist. He was an apostle. Apostolic ministry, I need you to catch this, is vitally important for every local church. Apostolic ministry can be described in many ways, but probably the simplest way I can put it to you is this, that they are master builders. If you want to build something lasting, if you want to build something well, you need a master builder. You need someone who knows how to build. You need someone who knows what is required. When it came to putting this building up, it wasn't just anybody who could help us. We had to have the right people. We had to have people who were in the building trade, people who understood building dynamics. Now, we appreciate all sorts of people in the church, but you know what? If if your skill is singing... That's great. We, we can use that. But when it comes to building this property, we need someone with a, few, a different skill set. And apostles are people with a certain skill set. And they, they, they can help build local churches. That's why it's so important that every local church is attached to apostolic ministry to ensure that local churches are built well. Otherwise, you get the three little pigs scenario. You know the story of the three little pigs? Piggy little one, in his haste to go out and play, builds a house made of straw. And yeah, it got up very quick. And he was teasing the guys that were taking so long to build. Going, nah, 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 nah. I've finished my house. Nah, 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 nah. And he was playing games. 
Piggy number two builds a house out of sticks, a little bit stronger than straw, but it was still quite a quick process. And so both those two get together, they're playing around, they're larking around, they're having fun, and they go to this other third little pig who's taking his time to build. Because he's doing it the long way around. He's not using straw, he's not using sticks, he's got himself some bricks. And they're teasing him, saying, come out and play, come out and play, come out and play. And he keeps building, he keeps building as a master builder, third little pig, master builder, keeps building. Now at that moment, the master builder pig looks stupid, like why would you spend so much time building that way? I'll tell you why. Because every home is going to experience a storm. Every life is going to experience some trouble. The big bad wolf is going to come and huff and puff on your house, on your life, on your family. And it's going to expose how you've built your life. And so when the big bad wolf comes and blows on the straw of ha- the house of straw, it falls. When he blows on the house of sticks, it falls. But by this time, the pig who'd built out of bricks had finished his home, and he was able to house the foolish builders. And so he wasn't just building for himself, he was building for others. That's what Paul was doing. He was building local churches that could stand the heat when it came. And it always does. Every one of us goes through hardships. And how we build is really important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. Apostolic ministry provides perspective. We've had apostolic ministry come into our church. I've had the privilege of, of being that to some in other churches. And essentially, it's about perspective. See, when you're working on something, often you get too close, too attached to something. And you can't see as you ought to see. Have you ever tried hanging a picture? Have you ever done that? You get a picture? And you go up to the wall and you try and hang it. Have you ever done this? Is it just me? Anyone ever look at me? Yeah, you got it? (laughs) Give me something. Give me, yeah. And as you're standing there trying to hang this picture... You're too close to know whether it's crooked or straight. And so you're kind of like, that looks straight to you from that distance. What apostolic ministry does is they stand back here from a distance and say, up on the right, down on the left. To hang that picture, it takes two. This guy's too far away to hang it to do all the work. But this guy's too close to know what he needs to do. And so Paul was able to go back to these local churches and say, this is great. He's able to encourage them and say, well done for this. This is fantastic. Just be careful of this. We've had people like Peter Howard Brown. We've had people like uh, Grant Crawford. We've got Craig Clark coming in just a few weeks. They don't come just to bless us. We do get blessed. Apostolic ministry absolutely blesses, but it's more than that. They build into the life of the church. They ensure that we're building and building well. We went to South Africa recently and we had the very same privilege of being able to go and be that outside perspective and say, great, well done, awesome, fantastic. Just watch this. Be careful here. I wouldn't do that if I was you. The heart behind all of that is to build strong, healthy local churches. 
This perspective that comes shines light in areas that are lacking. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Night and day, I pray most earnestly that we may see you again and simply supply what is lacking in your faith. The different cities they went to had different needs, had different problems, had different issues. We see in Pathos, there was an evil sorcerer by the name of Elimas and he was causing problems and, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands this guy to be blind and he gropes around and can't see. Judgment of God breaks out. He didn't do that everywhere he went, but he did that on that occasion because that's what was required, that's what was needed. And as a result, one of the Roman officials got saved. We see in Perga, John Mark, who is this young aide, this young helper, this, this cousin to Barnabas. We're not sure exactly what happened, but more than likely he got homesick. He was struggling on the journey. And so Paul has to make a tough call and send him home. Different need, but supplying what was required. In Antioch, we see that there are many converts. Persecution broke out against them. And Paul simply wipes the dust off his feet and leaves the city. In Iconium, there were many converts. Persecution broke out again got so bad for Paul that they stoned him. They left him for dead, dragged him outside the city. How's this? The church gathered around this dead man. They prayed for him. Paul gets up on his feet. Whether he was dead or not, I don't know, but he was lifeless and the church prayed and then he's alive. I don't know what that means. But this is what I do know. Paul goes back into the same city that's just stoned him. Such is his commitment and passion for the local church. In Lystra, there were many converts again. And because of the great things that Paul and Barnabas were doing, because it was a city that was guilty of idolatry, like most cities, they proclaimed and professed that these two men, that they're gods. They're not men, these are gods. And so Paul and Barnabas have to rip their clothes and say, no, 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 you got it all wrong. We're not God. We're trying to point you to the one who is God. All this is going on. They're trying to supply and provide what is lacking in their faith. In Derb, they preached the good news. And they went back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. To see how the churches that they'd established were doing. And then they returned back to home base in Antioch. And they reported all that had happened. It's amazing. Which says to me that there is a value placed on relationship. It wasn't just, we're out of here. They, they want to know how the local church was doing. Apostolic ministry is not just having a guest speaker come through. Someone who can wow us and make the local pastor look like an idiot. That's not apostolic ministry. Apostolic ministry comes alongside as a mate in ministry and helps and upholds and does life together. I thank God that we've got men in our life, apostolic ministry in our life, where we work together to establish local churches. Because no one church has the monopoly of truth. We all have blind spots. We have a blind spot as a church. We have a blind spot as individuals. We have blind spots in our marriages. And you know the thing about a blind spot? You can't see it. And you the right people, people that love you and are for you, going to help you see those blind spots. Paul chose his calling over comfort. 
And the thing about that is, when you do the will of God, it's not always well received. Not everyone's as happy to receive the truth as Paul was to share it. So much so that Paul, who's probably the greatest apostle outside of Jesus, said this of himself, to some, I'm an apostle. Paul knew he was an apostle, but you can only ever be anything to anyone if they will let you. And so here's Paul standing before them. And people just mocked him, ridiculed him, tried to kill him. They missed the point. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, was standing before him. And to some, he was the Messiah. He was the Messiah of the whole world, but to some, he was the Messiah. To others, he was a naughty, naughty boy. To some, he was just a carpenter's son. We know who you are. We know your mum. We know your dad. We know your brothers. We know your sisters. You're not the Messiah. And they missed the day of their visitation because they didn't have eyes to see. Am I an apostle? All I can say is to some I am. To some I am. To some I'm just a pain in the neck. To some I'm the most annoying guy that they know. You can only be to somebody what they'll let you be. Maybe some of you right now, it's like a, I feel like it's a word from God. Some of you are just trying too hard to be something that someone won't let you be. Just relax. Wipe the dust off your feet. Leave them to God. This is what Paul endured. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul was making his defense against these super apostles. Because it was these super apostles. These guys were boasting to be someone great. And so Paul says, you know what? If, if we're going to do a bit of boasting, let me, just, let me do a bit of boasting right now. Let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you what I've endured. And he goes, are they servants of Christ? And as he starts saying, he says, I'm out of my mind to be talking like this. It's like some people, some people force you to say things you don't want to say. He's like, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. It's not Paul showing off. It, it, what he's showing is how ignorant these people are, that he has to go there. He feels stupid. Paying this, I'm out of my mind. I'm more. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now some of you can say I was stoned, but that's a different kind of stoning. Okay. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers and in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and I have toiled and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And you have to ask yourself, why would you do it? Why would you do it? And he concludes with this. And I believe this was his motivation. And it was a love for the local church. He says, besides everything else, besides all of this stuff, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. I love that. Paul went to hell and back because he loved the local church. He loved the people that made up the local church church shouldn't be hard to get to not if you have this heart that Paul had and where does Paul's heart come from it's just an illustration 
of the heart that Christ has for his church. See, Jesus was beaten, battered, bruised. He was persecuted, mocked and ridiculed. He was crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb. His motivation for all of that? Love. Jesus quite literally loved the church to death. And on the third day, he rose again, showing who was really in control, showing who's really the boss, showing who is truly sovereign, and showing who wins in the end. And it was to that end, Paul labored and endured it all. Because he knew that in the end, with Christ, he would win. God has an incredible way of blessing some people and allowing others to suffer. And if you start debating, why does this happen? You're looking too small. The bigger picture is, in Christ, we win. On the same day, people are getting blessed. Others are dying for their faith. But it's all going to make sense. In 100 years from now, it's all going to make sense. When we've been there 10,000 years, there will be no regrets. The account of Paul's life happened some 2,000 years ago. And for the last 2,000 years, for all that Paul went through, no regrets. The message of the Christian should be, I'm living with no regrets. Every ounce of time spent in church, every ounce of time spent serving and volunteering and giving of ourselves and pouring ourselves out and sharing the truth and being rejected and being ripped off and and being molecule, ridiculed and mocked, molecule. It's all worth it. Paul had a deep desire to go to Spain. We're not sure that he actually got there. Which seems a little bit cruel, doesn't it? Why after all Paul went through, would God not allow him this one desire to go to Spain? Why not? Why wouldn't God allow Paul? Come on, give him a break. He gets... Killed, martyred for his faith. Where's God? But that's not the end of the story, people. On the day Paul was crucified, martyred, he went straight into the presence of God. And God had another plan to get Paul's message to Spain. The word that Paul wrote has since been written in many languages and distributed right around the world including a little country called Spain Paul got there it just didn't look the way he thought it would look God's going to do some incredible things in your life it just might not look like the way you think it's going to look but don't put your life on hold because things aren't turning out the way you thought they would let God have his way Paul has no regrets and this is just his first missionary journey. I mean, he has a number of other missionary journeys. We'll look at those. Numbers of other things happen. 
Don't tell me the Bible is boring. Don't tell me that it's irrelevant. Don't tell me we can't learn from it today. Will you please stand with me? I think it's fitting and right that we just break bread together as a local church community. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.